suffer. And so when we we looked at Revelation last week, um, we get this kind of vision of the new Jerusalem. And one of the things, like, as we kind of were digging, like, through, like, all the the details of what the new Jerusalem is, um, I think there are things that you kind of pull out, right? So some of it is, you know, trying to give, and I showed some, some, you know, pictures of maybe what it looks like. And that's kind of, you know, again, a more literal interpretation of what these things are. Um, you know, some maybe hold to a, a more, um, you know, symbolic uh, interpretation. But I think, again, whether the, the symbolism is definitely there in what John is trying to communicate. And so what are the things, though, that that reflects? So we, when we look at kind of like all the things that, you know, John is sharing, it reflects something about who God is. Even the city, like even like if it's literally as we kind of conceive it with a big pearl, um, you know, we cut a gate cut into it, uh, which is kind of how I, I see that. Um, it's hard to conceive, right? Because our view of what a pearl is, is on a smaller scale. And so what would that even look like on a bigger scale? But beyond that, it kind of reflects like who God is. I mean, again, we talk about architecture, we talk about, um, you know, going to different cities, especially when we talk about churches, which was kind of big, especially in Europe, um, why they built the way things, the way they built it with kind of high arches and to try to give this kind of grand view of who God is that was reflected in the architecture. We're kind of more a little bit utilitarian, uh, you know, in America and like how churches are viewed, especially recently. And so, but even, you know, with our you know, new church building and the design, this, the goal is to like communicate something about <clears throat> the values of, you know, of the church. And so what do we see in the new Jerusalem, right? Um, that the Lord values this idea of faithfulness, right? We see this, this spoken of, of just having the names of the 12 tribes and having the 12 apostles is like reminder of the faithfulness of those um, that God, like some of it was, you know, if you think of even the namesakes of the tribes, not all of those men were faithful. In fact, like some of those were very, uh, <coughs> unfaithful is the right word, um, uh, their behavior was not reflective of, of godly values, but he chose, right, uh, Abraham and he chose Jacob and his sons to represent the 12 tribes because that was what he, what he decided um, how he was going to um, uh, share, you know, who he was to his people. And then the apostles, right, chosen by Jesus. It's not like they applied for the position, although, you know, they all jumped at it when they were given the opportunity and asked to come. Um, but, again, God is pointing to not only his faithfulness, but the faithfulness of those uh, in the past. We have this idea of kind of beauty, right, with the stones and the crystal and kind of the reflection of what that looks like. Beauty matters to God, not that you know, our conception of what beautiful is has been, definitely been twisted. But, you know, God has this sense where if he's going to build something, it's, again, wasn't all out of just uh, wood. There was a reflective nature that probably has some aspects of being able to reflect who he is. And then, again, this idea of grandeur. Um, there may be a functionality of having it, uh, you know, what do we say, like 1,500 miles <laughs> you know, wide and long and high, and we kind of got that view of what that looked like with some of the visuals that I showed. Um, and so whether it's like, well, you need that much to just house those people, but I think it goes beyond that, right? There's something of this grandeur of the view of what God is, is, <clears throat> is showing us 
Because even with a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, like God is even way bigger than that. You know, our conception of like our universe as it is today, like you can't even think like where does the universe end? That's almost kind of a silly question because we can't quantify that at all. But even God is bigger than that. And so, anyway, those are the things that we kind of pull out from what we see in uh, in Revelation. So we're going to continue, finish up uh, chapter twenty one, and get to the beginning of chapter twenty two, and. Um, Look at some of the verses uh, that we kind of went through a little bit quickly last week and then kind of moving on to, uh, to some new stuff. So in chapter 21, we'll start with verse 21. And we read, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into the glory, uh, bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. <clears throat> so we looked at kind of these things quickly, but we'll go back to a few ideas, right? So um, when you enter this, this, you know, the gates, you see the streets of gold and the city is lit up with the glory of God. And so we'll see what that looks like again probably next week um, as we kind of finish that up and, and summarize, as John summarizes kind of the point of, of Revelation. And so... Kind of say, like, well, what do all these things point to? We talked about that in kind of the introduction that I was saying, is this idea of um, the symbols of what God is pointing to. And what do we see repeated? There's kind of a number that's repeated um, throughout Scripture. There's, like, lots of numbers that are, that are, that are, are repeated out through Scripture, but we see kind of this one number seen uh, a lot, <laughs> especially in these, these last couple chapters. And what number is that? Twelve. And so, I don't know why. I mean, you know, we only have ten fingers and ten toes, and that's how we count. If we had twelve fingers and twelve toes, we'd probably be on a different, like, counting system. But anyway, don't want to get into that. Um, so, we do have some twelves that we, you know, mark our lives by. And what are, what are some of those? What's a twelve that we mark our lives by? What's that? The oh, I think you said miles. Um, yeah. So, <coughs> yeah. The, so the months. Um, and so, again, that's something that God instituted. And uh, we looked at that just, just briefly um, last time as far as uh, having what, what the lights were that God gave in Genesis to mark our times by the moons. And that's 12 times in a year. Um, when, again, things passed back again, the stars came back in the same location, more or less, and that marked uh, a year in time. And so, again, did that start out, and then even doing 12 tribes and 12 apostles, was that reflective of something bigger? I don't know, but you see, again, that repeated and condensed kind of in this time. So maybe just even something of a reflection. I even think, like, the fact that we have... 12 as far as even 12 hours is day and 12 hours is night, roughly, 
There's 24 hours, and there was 12 tribes and 12 apostles. I mean, you know, I don't know. And so when we get to heaven, we can ask God, was there something about that? And he'll be like, no, it's just coincidence. Or like, yes, that was obvious, wasn't it? Right? And so you're like, I don't know. So anyway, so you don't have to like, you know, live your life by, by 12s. You got to do everything in 12s or anything like that. So there's nothing inherently, um, you know, prescriptive about that. But again, something reflective, something to just kind of think about as you, as you read through that. So what does John say that he doesn't see in there? Okay, yeah. So the temple. Now, what was the purpose of the temple or a temple? I guess you could say in general, what are, what's the purpose of a, of a temple? Okay, so a place to worship God. Now, what was the place to worship God? What was kind of the first place that was created to be a place to worship God? Yeah, so the tabernacle, right? And it's really interesting that even with the tabernacle, that God like prescribed all of the details on how I want you to write out, you know, to, to make the tabernacle. As, as you see... Um, the angel doesn't do as much as in if you see, is when um, the man, or likely the angel in Ezekiel, um, in measuring out what the temple would be and even like different aspects of the temple and getting a lot of the details of the measurements. But you see all those details and measurements um, back in the tabernacle. And so there was things that God had prescribed, this is how I want um, this place to be. And so... We would say that, yes, a temple is a place to worship God, but what also did it function as? I mean, the tabernacle was kind of a place, like, how would the Israelites have described it? Maybe less likely as their place of worship, but how would they have described what the tabernacle? What's that? And that's true, like, ritualistically, but what was it in terms of, like, God? What do you think? Yeah, so the presence of God and the dwelling place of God, right? This is, like, where God, like kind of had his glory, right? You know, when the tabernacle was first instituted, what happened? Like, how did we know that God was there? Yeah, so it was like filled up with smoke, right? And so you had, had again, like this idea of the presence of God. And even, you know, just outside the camp of the Israelites, it was a pillar of fire or a cloud, right? And it moved, and so the Israelites moved, and then it was you know, with the tabernacle, like this was where Moses would consult with God, and this was like the place where God would be, because before it was on a mountain. Um, and so the tabernacle went where the Israelites went, and that was like where God was. So when David came along, then it was, we're no longer moving around, we don't need a tent or a tabernacle, so then we're going to build, you know, David said, I want to build a house for God. So we would call it a temple, right? The the um, Solomon's, you know, temple, but uh, it was, again, a place that God can now, like, you don't need to move around, God, now you have a place, like, that was anything, you know, rough on God, like, he didn't like to travel or anything, so um, the temple was there. Now, New Testament, what's, what, what does that look like? So, we don't have the tabernacle, we don't have the temple, but what is it now? Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's now, right, we as individuals and collectively as a body, kind of both of those terms are where um, God's spirit, but God dwells. And so the place of worship is now with wherever we are at. And when we are gathered, it is that glory of God is more 
manifest. And so, so that's how we see kind of moving along, but now in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no temple, there is no tabernacle, because while you know, God no longer needs to dwell within us, because God is now among us. And so, interestingly, like we see that kind of idea, um, and we'll, we'll explore this just a little bit as we see some other, like, what else is, is in this. But John mentions there is no temple. In Ezekiel, a lot of the language, and we'll see this in just a couple, you know, some of the verses that we'll look at, has to do with the temple itself and the temple being a huge part of this vision. John says there is no temple and that isn't just like a passing, just kind of, oh, by the way, there is no temple. It is significant to think about because there is no need for a temple. Almost kind of thinking back to like the garden, there was no need for that um, because man walked with God and God walked with man. Also, we see that there is no light, so there's no need for the sun or the moon. What is the source of the light? Yeah, so God, and again, John will repeat that a couple times as we think about that. So again, there's all those things that you think about, like, what does that mean that we're not going to sleep or, you know, I, I don't know. Um, again, we kind of touched on that a little bit. So uh, there's no day or night. The gates will never close. So um, there's this idea, there's security. We already understand that. There is, you know, it's repeated that there is no sin. There is no uh, anything that is detestable, he writes that, um, because anything that is unclean or detestable is outside of the gates. And we'll see that again probably next week um, when, when John kind of wraps that up. And so that's what the, the outside of the city looks like, <clears throat> maybe as you kind of peer into it a little bit. And so we're going to go a little bit deeper into it and see what John says, but not too much. I mean, there's only a handful of verses as far as what's inside this description, it's almost like waiting for us, you know, like you'll, you'll, you'll see more when you get there. But what does that give us as an understanding, again, of what God wants us to know and who God is as far as his character? So if we look at chapter 22, verse 1, we see, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, <clears throat> yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, we see this kind of first thing, right? Uh, what's the first thing that the angel shows John as he goes into the city? River. Yeah, so we've got this river of the water of life. You kind of think, like, well, what's that about, Right? We've already talked, you know, maybe there's no oceans, maybe there's a sea, a sea of glass, I don't know, what does that look like? There's definitely a river that is spoken of, and so this water of life. Now, John likes to, like, use certain language that he has used earlier before, and where we've kind of heard this, like, 
you know, description of like a water of life. Okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. And let me, let me read there. It's, you can either, you know, turn to there. There's a couple of verses in John we'll go to. But in John chapter 4, right, with the woman at the well, there's in, in verse 7 we, we read, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, Well, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then she kind of repeats and is like, What are you talking about? And so, skip down to verse 13. He says, uh, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So the water that she's drawing from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so you see kind of like this river, right, that that Jesus spoke of, right, that he was the river of life. I mean, is this understanding like, well, there's this river, so do you drink from it? Is that how you get eternal life? Well, maybe we'll pause on that idea for just a second. But Jesus had spoken of that kind of earlier in John chapter 7, um, uh, verse 37, you read, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so this idea of the connection between this river um, of living water that's flowing out of someone's heart is because of the Holy Spirit. So again, John, as he's describing this vision, um, you know, definitely uses language. And for him, that would be something like, you know, he's communicated before. And again, he's big on Ezekiel. So I want to read where we see this idea of a river in back in Ezekiel, and we'll just read a, a few verses from there. So in Ezekiel 47, remember again, this man and this angel likely is kind of measuring different aspects and writing all these dimensions of, of different things uh, about the temple. And in chapter 47, verse 1, we read, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around uh, on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. 
When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. So you see this kind of interesting, like, this river is coming from a temple, right? So in Ezekiel, there's a temple there. But in John's vision, it's not. So they're not quite the same thing, but they're, they're different because John specifically says there is no temple. And then here, it makes this river that's flowing out kind of gets deeper and deeper. But there is a trees on every side um, to, to eat from. In verse 12, on the banks of, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So interesting, again, like the language that John pulls from is pulling directly from Ezekiel. Is this the same picture uh, at different times? It looks to be different. Is this a picture, again, of Ezekiel talking about something that looks like it's going to be within the millennial kingdom? Uh, We talked about, again, the millennium when we talked about uh, chapter 20. But again, what does that look like? But again, you see the same language that is being described, and this river is there. So what this river is, um, exactly what its purpose is, um, is definitely, again, a reminder of who Christ is and where it flows from is also something significant as well. In Ezekiel's vision, it flowed from the temple, and out into the sea, where does it flow from in John's vision? Yeah. So you've got the throne. And so, again, like, again, a little bit of a difference, but, um, you know, what's the difference, again, between the te- a temple and a throne? Yeah. And the, the, the throne of where God sits, and we, don't, we see not only that, but um, it's not just God, but what also is the description that is used? The Lamb. The Lamb. And so John, um, over 20 times in Revelation, uses this term, the Lamb, uh, to speak about Jesus. And so we have God and the Lamb are there as the authority and from this authority, this river, and this river that is kind of bright as a crystal, is flowing. And again, it should kind of, you know, be a reminder of what that river is supposed, you know, is, is symbolizing uh, there in the city. And again, I, I don't know if you've been to, you know, whenever, whenever I've visited a city, a city that is, has a um, river that flows through it, I don't know, there's always just something unique about it. Those cities. I mean, a lot of cities have rivers that flow through them. Sometimes they're just not as prominent as other other cities. But like the, it's like the city is built around what that um, what that river serves and its purpose. And so this the river is again a prominent aspect of the city in the the New Jerusalem. We see John speaking of the Lamb of God. The only time that we see you know, the term Lamb of God used is in John chapter 1, right? And, and it's John the Baptist who uses it and repeats himself, right? One time he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he repeats it again in the next chapter. So we've got this idea that 
John uses this language to remind people of who Jesus is as the Lamb and repeats it repeatedly through Revelation. Although, interestingly, if you go back to Revelation chapter 5, we see a, a description of the Lamb. And it's one of those, like, I don't know. Um, what is, in my mind, it's like, what is John communicating uh, in how he writes his description of the Lamb? And let me just read it in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So again, when John sees a vision, he's actually seeing a vision that looks like something that represents something else. So we know the lamb is Jesus, but I'm like, is he actually seeing a lamb, you know, like a a lamb? And that's the vision that he sees because it represents different things. And the lamb, right, so when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So the picture that we see there is a Lamb who was slain. John doesn't describe the lamb in that that way at all but it is a lamb who is with god in authority to be praised for blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and so this river again flows from the the throne and on either side of the river what do we see yeah which is interesting because it's kind of one tree but it's either side, so is it like multiple trees? And do I think, is it like the aspen tree? What do you guys know about the aspen tree? Have you guys heard about that? Like the aspen tree is like actually like one tree that has a root system that goes underneath and like is connected. Um, so I don't know what other trees are like that or other. Cypress. What's that? Cypress. cypress. Am I right on that? Is it the aspen tree that's like that in cholera? Is it cypress or is it similar? Not a, the aspen, but is the aspen like that? It's in Colorado, right? Is where okay. So, I didn't dig down. I mean, I just people told me this, and so, um, so is it trees or is it one tree because they're connected? Uh, anyway, we don't need to like parse that too differently. But the idea is again, John is going back to symbolism uh, of what this looks like and what this tree of life is. Does anyone know where we see the tree of life? Where we where we first saw the tree of life? Yeah, so in the garden. Um, so let me read there in chapter 2 of Genesis. I know we're going like kind of all over Scripture, but again, John is pulling from these things as he's just describing like in a few verses what he sees. But what he sees um, is packing a lot of like insight into the history. And we're going all the way back into the beginning. Like we're almost at the end of, you know, almost at the end of, of Scripture, going back to almost the very beginning of Scripture, we see a tie-in. Because right, God is the same God, even though separated over several thousand years um, when these events happen, at least in, in our mind. Um, so Genesis 2.8, And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, 
in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of their garden, of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So again, you've got this river and these trees. Picture is repeated. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then that tree of, you know, good of, uh, the knowledge of good and evil, that's the one that, like, we have our focus on. And even though, like, all the other trees that he could eat from, but all the other trees included every other tree, but also included this tree of life. And so it's almost like the tree of life was forgotten, except after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, we read, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So every, you know, basically all of humanity was cut off from this tree of life guarded by an angel and a flaming sword after the flood. I don't know what happened to it, you know, didn't need to be guarded again. Like, I don't, you know, again, one of those, like, what happened to access? But there was, like, no going to uh, that tree. But now we see this tree is here in the midst of specifically mentioned in, uh, you know, on, on either side of the river. And what does this tree do? And for Adam, it was like, we didn't really see, other than he could eat from it and live forever. But we see, again, kind of a, a picture um, of the, the fruit that it yields, and we see that how often does it yield its fruit? Every month. Every month. Now, again, that's kind of interesting to me because... There is no light and darkness, so there is, in my sense, like a sense of like time passing, meaning that it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, during daylight hours, time passes, so it's not like there's not an understanding of that. But what does that look like? But there seems to be a marking, and as John's saying, it's like every month or like every 28 days. Um, we typically we have a marked the months or however we do it, you know, the 30 and 31, and except February. Um, or is it just kind of a cyclical, like every periodic time it yields a different fruit? So again, it's, it's just interesting to think of like a variety of what that will be and you know, what it will produce. But again, this tree um, has a significance because what, is, what does the tree do? What does the tree provide? So we, we see that it yields its fruit each month. And then there's something else that beyond the fruit, right, is what else does it have? It has leaves, right? So you think of a tree. tree has, you know, gives fruit. And for the most part, like the fruit is what people are after. And the leaves, you know, help in aiding uh, the photosynthesis for the fruit that it's going to bear. But the, the leaves of the tree is, is described as doing what? 
healing, healing of what? Yeah, healing and healing of the nations. So, what do you make of that? Yeah. Because even in the millennial reign, as far as I understand, there's still death. There's still a cycle of death <clears throat> representing the curse. Correct. Either yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. And even though it'll be, you know, those that, that whatever, die young will be, um, will be a curse for that, but it still will exist. So... You know, so you kind of think about that, like, so is it the lead, is it like an aloe plant, right? And, you know, but I think, again, beyond that, um, what is a tree, what, what, what is, what do we see as far as, like, a tree providing? So for you guys, what, is a, what does a tree provide, especially the leaves of a tree? Shade. Yeah. So in the fall, it's work, right? Um, but we don't see that there's the dropping of the leaves uh, in that. So, but during, during, like, especially, like, the heat of the sun, not that we're going to see that, but even that is kind of a shade. And, and you see that picture, right? When even Jesus came to Nathaniel, he was like resting under a, a tree, right? Presumably kind of under the shade of the tree. And so for the healing, it could be in that aspect, right? And understood in kind of this tree that gives its fruit, there's also a comfort. Um, there's also the understanding, right? Like when we have, what, what is the other picture? What is the picture that Paul uses when he uses a tree, especially in Romans? Yeah, exactly. So when I think of kind of like the nations, right, like specifically he's looking at Gentile and Jew grafted into one tree. And so they're all in one tree, all in one, uh, you know, presumably what that looks like. And if you've ever like looked at like grafting of different branches, it can still produce different fruit. And so this is more of like, again, seems like, you know, one tree and the fruit is just different, different months. So is that the idea of the healing, of kind of the picture of what that looks like and in the ingrafting of them together? So it's hard to, it's, you know, again, I don't know. I don't know, you know, as one commentator said, this part of the verse is very pro- problematic um, because it's like, what is the purpose? And are there nations? But I think also what John and either John's speaking to us in the presence that what we experience now in the separation of our nations will not exist. And I think we forget about that sometimes, you know, because we live within a nation. <laughs> but there's a sense that, like, we, you know, for, for the large part of those who live in the nations, like, we feel an allegiance to our country, right? I don't know about you, but when the Olympics come on, I usually root for the Americans. I don't know why. And there's something like when the Americans lose, it's like, it's not like I follow these sports or I am invested in there, but like I just happen to watch figure skating and I'm rooting for an American because I don't know, you've got that flag on and that's, you know, the country that I've been born in. And so there is this like this allegiance, a sense that like we are, you know, separated as nations. And so to put us all together, um, there's a sense where, like, that will no longer be a thing. Maybe you just thought, like, if you pluck 10 people up from every nation 
and just put them in a room in a conference, you know, like how well will they be able to interact with one another? I mean, you've got language barriers, you've got like other things that are along, and cultural barriers, all of those things. And so you probably will have 10 people from the same nations just kind of segregated just because that's easy. And you'll have those, you know, extroverts who like to like work the room, you know, um, make that their mission. But, but the idea, right, again, is that like we are, are, we are made up of nations. And then for John, right, it was a nation that ruled over, you know, multiple nations. And although they were an empire, they definitely weren't like one empire, um, you know, as a Roman empire together. So just interesting to kind of think about as you, as you look through what this is. And you're like, what's the purpose of this tree? And again, I don't know the answer to that. But it's, it's, as you think about that, God has, even in John's vision is what he says, he's revealing a lot about what's happening and what will be understood about what we'll experience in the future. What do you mean? I mean, like, because it says earlier that the nations will bring their glory into it. Yes. Well, I definitely think that's, yeah, definitely a part of that. And again, as you see the symbolism as walking into the city and the tribes of Israel and the apostles are described, I mean, even though most of them were very Jewish, um, yeah, that I think there is, again, a connection of, like, we're all in this together. Like, yes, that was the past, but the past is the past. Now we're in eternity, and this is what we'll experience together. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good, I hadn't thought of that, just the fact that Gentiles and kings have been granted grace and mercy through Christ, so what are your thoughts? Yeah, and, and even the fact that, you know, so um, I went over that like very quickly. And part of it, I think, is, uh, is part of um, some of the difficulties of the fact of like why, you know, I think there's a reality of like we, there, there is a sense of, we understand our past um, that is not severed. So even us coming in, I mean, it's, it's, as questions were asked of Jesus, I mean, and the big one, I've mentioned it before, is like, well, what will marriage look like? And who will this person be married to? And he's like, you're not thinking about this right. <laughs> so I think there's a way that you're like, I don't know if any of us can conceive what this looks like. There's also that aspect of what does this look like is, most of humanity living in this city um, is, and I don't think so, but you kind of get the idea that this is like the central place. So what is our interaction with the city? How involved will we be in coming into the city and out of the city? Because there are the gates to go in and out of with the nation, like the kings coming into there. I think it's the idea of like their past um, and authority, which, you know, they're bringing as uh any triumph, any like glory that they had, they're bringing it into the nation, uh, sorry, into the city, and it's being absorbed by the glory of God. But yeah, I'll just say I don't know exactly what that looks like. They're just things that I would speculate on, like what does that mean? Like why even, why even speak about that 
in these terms, it, it almost seems like it confuses us a little bit instead of like clarifies. Um, but whatever it means, right, there still is one throne. And even if there were, again, past kings and nations, um, they're all under the auspice of this authority of God and the Lamb. So I don't know how that'll look like. There are different roles. I mean, we'll see that in just a second. There are those, you know, there people will be serving. And so if there's an idea of serving, what does that look like? And you have to serve something and to someone. Um, and so what will that look like? And so... Yeah. At some point, the kings or the magi, the people that were honored on this earth, came and bowed down to an infant, you know, or a toddler, whatever <clears throat> time. But something about seeing men of great stature and prominence also bow down and submit to the one true king of kings, that helps. That That's kind of something that could be or not, but that helps me think that's how they bring their glory and their influence to know that there is one throne and that they will bow down. And so that's really a neat concept to think about. I mean, I even, you know, anytime we even see an athlete or someone that's a great honor or whatever, kneel down. I mean, when you're watching the U.S. Open and we love, yeah. you know, this little 19-year-old that won. And then we see... Is she an American? I don't know. You, is she there, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's a... Went over to her chair and she bowed down on the court, you know, and prayed, you know. I don't know. I mean, but we've never seen a tennis player do that after they win a $2 million check and all of that. So I just wonder, you know, in light of that, that's a helpful. Thank you. I think that does help and even, you know, that's... Well, and I think there's a reality that some of the descriptions you see are like there's a lot of people in white robes and this idea... And I, and I, and I think in, in my sense, which I am prone to do... Sometimes I feel rightly, but sometimes wrongly, is a sense of individualism. Like, meaning, like, whatever titles I had, whatever accolades get stripped away, and now I'm just reduced to, like, we're all just, like, the same. But I think that's, I think that, I don't think that's quite true. I think that then, like, strips us down to, like, we're all equal. You know, we might be all equal in the eyes of God as far as love, but I think we're still all, as our own children, different and unique, so will there be those aspects of, like, who we were still brought in because that's what God had either, you know, bestowed on certain people um, during their time on earth? I don't know. Those are, those are things to kind of think about, you know, and what does that look like? But at some point, we have to say, like, there's a gap in what has been revealed to us that we just don't know. But it does force us to think, yeah, I don't think everything's just it's not like a communistic, you know, like we're all the same, right? Because there is this idea of rewards, but what does that look like and how does that play out? And I think even just the fact of like there are being authorities or kings shows that there are some like differences. And so what does that look like? Um, and anyway, so. God is a God of order. Yes. Structures in his wisdom. And I've heard compelling commentary that, of course, there'll be no distinction. Just like even when you experience a foreign believer now, you know there's a unity there that uh, the distinguish the distinction of your nationality or race are removed because of your common faith. So obviously that'll be the sense 
among all people, but yet there, there still will be a representation of that. That's just the, the commentary that I've read, which was a new thought I'd never considered. Yeah. It's interesting you call out the difference with communism, because they just wipe out everything else other than the one thing, you know, their one party mindset, whereas God has glory and diversity, uh, and you know, the, the, the different backgrounds, even potentially sinful things that he has saved people from to bring them into this perfect eternity. Uh, it's just, it's just the contrast between communism, which is so totalitarian, and God is also totalitarian. Right. <laughs> right. But it's just a very different way of going about it. Yeah. Well, and that's, again, you think, you know, is there going to be one common language? Is there, you know, accents? As you say, like, visibly, you know, we'll all be glorified bodies, but we'll. We all have like the same skin color, you know, all that. But it's like, what do we bring, and what will we see? And I don't know. Some things again, as we're we're not gonna we're not gonna reveal and get to. Uh, we'll pause there. But I do want us to again, you know, one idea, just to kind of like as we'll as we'll kind of tie up this section um, next week. We're almost done with the section, but um, I just wanted to kind of pause there. As you think, like, kind of about these things again, and I, maybe we we happen to touch on it. There is a sense that you, you get kind of lost in like what this looks like. And it, again, you feel like maybe you'll just be like one shuffled in. And I think in a sense, um, which we'll see in the last couple of verses, which gets echoed back, is we sense it here on earth when there is like, what place will we have in heaven? I think that's like sometimes what people struggle with in um, like being excited about heaven and again, there's still a lot of like, I don't know how that's going to look. And even a little bit of differences about how people view things. But when we don't see ourselves like in identifying a little bit of like our place and what that could look like, and again, that still remains to be seen, it, it causes us to kind of pull away. We even see that within, I was listening to a sermon recently that I don't know why this kind of echoed in, is we see that in, in our sense of community as well, that if we don't see ourselves as part of like, the community and our purpose within the community, um, we, we, we feel more than just like disconnected, we feel like a burden, like our place in community, like if we have nothing to do, then we are not an asset, we're a liability. And I think that's again something like that God is, even in this vision, is kind of stripping us away from in the things that we see in our purpose here. And we'll, we'll speak to a little bit more of that as we'll wrap this up. And see how far we get in wrapping up the rest of chapter 22. Um, you guys have any questions or thoughts before we get to some of those things? I see where Harry and David got their fruit of the month. Oh, is that right? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they need to have uh, additional leaves of healing for the, the nation. Um, So there was a there was a book I had he he has like a bigger book and I think even a kids book and I don't know this is like a weird almost like reference book on um, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven and I mean it's almost like what does heaven say about animals anticipation bodies books and reading boredom clothing conflict you know sports technology I mean just like things like is there one on coffee. Okay. 
boredom, uh, family, food and drink. Maybe it's in the food and drink section. So, um, and he pulls like scripture in to think like, what is, you know, what does that look like? I mean, even like the one like, is there going to be sports? And so, um, he, he does a pretty good job about not overemphasizing, but I think what he does do is kind of like get us to think a little bit more like, I haven't really thought about that. Um, and so not that he's the definitive resource, but it is something to kind of prod our minds. And it, he, he backs it up with scripture, um, and at least in, in his, his argument or, or how he can view his justification for some of those things. So uh, if you want to look at it, you can look at it. Um, and maybe I'll bring it next week too. All right, we'll end there.